Hello, welcome to episode number 125 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Ahmet Kuru, professor of political science at San Diego State University and author of Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment, a Global and Historical Comparison, published by Cambridge University Press. The book questions why Muslim-majority countries exhibit high levels of authoritarianism and low levels of socio-economic development in comparison to world averages, and traces the causes not to Islam as a religion itself, but to the 11th century when Kuru argues an alliance between orthodox Islamic scholars and military states began to emerge, hindering intellectual and economic creativity ever since. But before we get started with that conversation, first let me remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in Ivy Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other related content in the email that I send to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper into the subject. So to become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ahmet Kuru. His book tells a now familiar story of Muslim scientific, technological and intellectual flourishing between the 8th and 12th centuries before the Islamic world was taken over by the West in subsequent centuries. So I started by asking him what nudged him to research and write this book now. So, William, my first book was on secularism, comparing Turkey, France and United States. And I was hoping that Turkey, instead of keeping the French type assertive secularism, a bit exclusionary to public religiosity, and also avoiding an Islamism like Iranian type Islamist regime, can find a middle way, uh, American type passive secularism, a secularism which is friendly with religion. It was 2009 book. And after that, especially since 2011, Turkey has taken a road down toward authoritarianism and breakdown of democracy. It was very disappointing for me, like many other people. In addition to that, Arab Springs or the so-called Arab Springs turned into a winter. Arab uprising did not produce a democracy except Tunisia, which was another disappointment. And all around the Muslim world, from Malaysia to Indonesia and Bangladesh, Pakistan, I have observed a substantial level of Islamization, political and legal and sociological Islamization, bringing certain authoritarian laws and practices. And I've been grappling with the question of 
declined for a very long time. But the, these recent disappointments in the last 10 years or so in Turkey, Arab world and Muslim world in general, make me more wondering and researching and analyzing the deep roots of the problem of authoritarianism and underdevelopment in 49 Muslim majority countries. And I've been living in the United States for 20 years, and it's another way for me to compare the so-called Western countries and Muslim majority countries. And since the last 10 years also, I had the chance to live and conduct interviews and observe many Muslim majority countries, including Kazakhstan, Qatar, Egypt, Tunisia, of course, Turkey. In the mind of many Turks, because of the decline of the Ottoman Empire, because of the promises of the Turkish Republic, partially at least failed, make people think about the rise and the fall of civilization, the rise and fall of Muslim success, and then how come the Western Europeans surpass Muslims scientifically, economically, and otherwise. That's the long-term project. But for the last 10 years, certain uh, democratic promises not fulfilled and create these appointments, also a big encouragement for me. Therefore, for the last 10 years since the publication of my secularism book in 2009, I focus on this project and then the result is my book published by Cambridge University Press last year. So some would argue they would make essentialist explanations, basically pointing to Islam as the cause of authoritarianism in most Muslim countries. They would say that there's something inherently authoritarian in Islam as a religion, as well as something you know, patriarchal. And that's the reason why uh, we've seen these developments happen. What's your response to that argument? You are right. This is a very sweeping and well-known argument, not only in the West, but also in the Muslim world. Even in Turkey, there are many people believe that Islam is the obstacle. And that's the source of many problems, including violence, authoritarianism and underdevelopment in many Muslim majority countries. So throughout my book, I take this argument very seriously. There are scholars from Max Weber to Samuel Huntington, Bernard Lewis, who emphasize this argument again and again. A main weakness of the argument is the lack of explanation about mechanism. Islam is an obstacle for progress and democratization. How does it do so? What is the mechanism? So in my book, I try to show the readers that there are democratic Muslim countries, there are economically developing Muslim countries, and in certain areas like sub-Saharan Africa, Muslim majority countries are doing better than Christian majority countries on the issue of democracy and certain level of coexistence of various religions. So therefore, Islam is neither necessary nor sufficient cause for any of these problems. And moreover, throughout the book, I try to document how Islam was perfectly compatible with philosophical achievements, with economic flourishing, and with certain idea of egalitarianism and open society in the conditions of 8th to 12th centuries, as you mentioned at the beginning. And, and at the extreme level, of course, Islamophobia leads us to racism, which is normatively, scientifically unacceptable. That, that's a whole different story, political dimensions of the problem. But if you look at the scientific dimension, there is the lack of causal explanation. And when I keep asking, the only causal explanation Orientalists or Essentialists can provide us is the argument that unlike Christianity, Islam does not accept 
religion-state separation. This is a major problem leading to authoritarianism. So therefore, in my book, I try to analyze this issue. And what I find out is that from the 8th to 12th centuries, there was certain level of separation between Islamic authorities and political authorities. Muslim scholars, especially, especially the four founding fathers of Sunni mashabs, the Sunni school of law scholars, they all tried to put a distance between between themselves and the political authority. And when I trace the origin of this separation between religious and political authorities, it is going all the way to the civil war between Ali, the son-in-law of the Prophet, and Muawiyah, the governor of Damascus, who later founded the Umayyad dynasty. And then Muawiyah, Yezid, and the founders of Umayyad dynasty persecuted certain families of the Prophet, which create a certain level of disenchantment, disillusion of pious Muslims, Sunni, and of course, most, almost all Shias, in terms of the idea that political authority can be moral or not. They say it cannot be moral. Political authority is not ethical. It is corrupt. And we should put a distance between religious morality and political power. So that was the early Islam. But things change around mid-11th century. And Turks, Arabs, and Persians, all three ethnic groups, play their role. The Abbasi caliphs were Arab. They play their role in the foundation of a Sunni orthodoxy and what I call ulema state alliance. The alliance between Islamic scholars and state emerged mid-11th century in today's Central Asia, Iran, Iraq. Then a century later, it was spread to Syria, Egypt, especially under Saladin and his AUB, then Mamluk dynasties, this ulema state alliance, based on certain economic institutions and madrasas, they became a cooperation alliance between religious and political authority in the Islamic world. So therefore, going back to your early, uh, original question, those who blame Islam provide us the idea or the cliche that there is no separation between religion and state in Islam as their main explanation why Islam for them is an obstacle of democratization or progress. In my opinion, Islam is not the problem per se, as, and the idea of religion-state separation existed, did exist in Islam from 8th to 11th century. Things change in the 11th century, I and mean, what we observe today as Islam is a historical construct, especially its relations with state. So therefore, I reject the idea that Islam is the source of problem as a religion. My own alternative explanation is that the ulema state alliance, which emerged in mid 11th century, which still exists today in various forms, from Turkey's Diyanet to Egypt's LSR and Mufti and other religious institutions, all the way to Iran's Mullahs and Supreme Leader. So this is how I provide an alternative explanation, which is somehow related to Islam, but does not blame Islam as the culprit. What about somebody who may say in response to that there's the example of the prophet muhammad and the first four caliphs you know they almost prove that uh, islam and the state are inherently linked uh, you know religion was central to the justification and promulgation of the state you know muhammad founded an empire basically and, and led it into battle so what would you say to that argument 
Yeah, this is an argument I almost receive a critique, a question almost every week and all, on all the conversations this come out. It's an important question. And in fact, I understand and portray the Prophet and the four Caliphs as an exception that proves the rule in two ways. One way is that according to Islamic belief, Muhammad, the Prophet, was the only one who received the revelation. And after him, no connection with God whatsoever in terms of a revelation. And the four caliphs had direct contact with him as his companion, some of them as his father-in-law, some of them son-in-law, direct personal connection. And this one plus four, the prophet plus four caliphs had charismatic religious authority. They did not have a political authority based on a state as an institution. How do we know that? Neither the prophet nor the four caliphs had bodyguards officially installed and institutionalize. They did not use any symbol of dynasty, monarchy, empire. In Islamic history, the first leader ruler who used these symbols, including bodyguards, throne, crown, was Muawiyah, the governor of Damascus, who fought against Ali, then established the Umayyad dynasty. And therefore, many historians regard Muawiyah and other rulers of Umayyad dynasty as secular rulers, and even secularizing rulers because they took the political power in a level of rational, secular, a religious position that they showed the power is the important principle. You, don't, you are not supposed to be moral. And it's in a Machiavellian way, centuries before Machiavelli, Umayyads showed that politics has its own rules and you can persecute and kill Prophet's grandson, still be ruler, as long as you follow the rules of the game. So in that sense, the Prophet and the four caliphs were exceptions. Their model cannot, will not, shall not be repeated ever, period. It's a one-time experience which will not be repeated again. Therefore, Islamists and various Muslim groups who are seeking to revive the caliphate, etc., they are following a vain hope. There will never be a prophet again. And in fact, that was the point understood in European thought as well. John Locke, in his important booklet, A Letter of Toleration, emphasized that we don't don't have a prophet among us, there is no one receiving any message from God, therefore no one should claim any religious authority. And that's the Sunni point of view. That was the main schism division between Sunnis and Shias. Shias argue that religious authority continues. After Prophet, there is Ali, then seven Imams or 12 Imams. Sunni says no, after Prophet, no one has any authority. But this Sunni position later on changed, and I think mid-11th century was very crucial. But early Muslims understood very well that the Prophet's example on that point is not and cannot be repeated. Now, Others may argue that it's quite simple why Muslim-majority countries are underdeveloped because of colonial or imperial exploitation, basically, and its long-lasting effects, which uh, they would say have crippled these countries, these societies from the start. What do you make of that explanation? Why do you think that explanation is not enough? Uh, thanks for the question, William. This is also the second alternative explanation, very well known in the Middle East. If you ask people in the Middle East, they blame the West. And it has historical roots of blaming the other, the foreigners, all the way to crusaders. 
Normatively, the problem of this argument is that once you focus on blaming the others, you don't see your own internal weaknesses, internal problems, illnesses, and never have the chance to cure them, never have the chance to face your own problems and try to fix them. And historical analysis shows us that the problems in the Muslim world began before the beginning of colonization. Because colonization, the modern European colonization of Muslim lands, began roughly in early 19th century and became more deeper, extensive in mid-19th century, especially in the Middle East. It started earlier in Indian Ocean, India, Indonesia, etc., even before 19th century. 19th century it began, but referring to the mainland, the Middle East, it's mostly a 19th century issue. Even if we take it 18th century issue, still it came after the stagnation in the Muslim world. What do I mean by stagnation? For example, the Europeans use three instruments very effectively in their reform periods and centuries of progressive revolutions, including Renaissance, Reformation, geographical discoveries, printing revolution, enlightenment, scientific revolution, and industrial revolution. What are the three instruments? They are gunpowder, nautical compass, and printing press. All were invented by Chinese, then developed and used very effectively by Western Europeans. Out of the three, the three Muslim empires of Ottoman, Safavi, and Mughals only used gunpowder very effectively. The two others, nautical compass and printing press, were not embraced by Muslims for centuries. Nautical compass was not a very important tool for Safavis and Mughals, which were land-based, army-based empires. Ottomans had a successful navy controlling Eastern Mediterranean for a long time, but the Ottomans did not have a civil commercial fleet. It was mostly a military experience for Ottomans. So they didn't really use nautical compass to go ocean, etc. In fact, the first time an Ottoman ship, a military navy ship, arrived to the American continent was 400 years after Christopher Columbus. That's really surprising that it took so long for an Ottoman ship arriving American continent. Anyhow, so the Ottomans, together with Safavian Mughals, used the gunpowder very effectively because these are military empires and the Ulema state alliance I am referring to as the dominant class alliance had military commanders who understood the importance of gunpowder very well and they use it. But the merchants and intellectuals who were very successful and productive in the Muslim golden era from 8th to mid-11th or 12th centuries, they were marginalized already when it comes to 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century Ottoman Safavi Mughal empires. And then that's why the maritime and then commercial fleet did not exist in these empires. They didn't use nautical compass and it took four centuries for an Ottoman ship to arrive American continent. Last but not least, the printing press. The first Muslim-owned Muslim printing press in the Ottoman Empire was open around 
1727. There were some Christians in the Ottoman Empire having printing press before, but for printing books for Muslims, the Ottomans waited around 280 years from Gutenberg to Ibrahim Mutafarrika. 280 years was a big gap. And I compare the number of books Ottoman printing press printed in the 18th century, which is estimated to be 50,000, with the number of book copies printed in Western European printing presses in the same century, 18th century, which was estimated to be 1 billion. So 50,000 versus 1 billion. This is a big gap before colonization began. And what is the result? When it came to 1800, the estimated average literacy rate in the Ottoman Empire only 1%, and the estimated average literacy rate in Western Europe reached 31%. So 1% versus 31%, which shows that philosophically, intellectually, education-wise, economically, the Muslim world face a major stagnation and even a decline. They no longer produce Ibn Sina, Farabi, Biruni type that caliber scholars. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, they already had an intellectual stagnation, which happened before the colonization. And therefore, you can see Western colonization as more an effect rather than cause of Muslim decline, because what makes Western European colonizers successful in the Muslim lands was that Muslims already had socioeconomic and academic and otherwise problems, which makes them weak. Now, central to the book is this focus on the ulema or religious scholars and their changing role in Muslim majority states over centuries. Uh, you argue and you prove that uh, in the earliest centuries of Islam, the ulema were actually distant from state authorities. And then gradually over time, there became this kind of ulema state alliance. And uh, you argue that that's been really the main cause of uh, many problems. And you say that this alliance uh, left this legacy of authoritarianism and underdevelopment in the 20th century. There's a quote in the book that I will just read out. You say, quote, in early Islamic history, Muslims were scientifically and economically superior to Western Christians because they ascribed high status to scholars and merchants, whereas Europe was mostly under the hegemony of the clergy and the military elite. Later on, the positions eventually became reversed. In Muslim lands, the ulema and the military elite became dominant, while in Western Europe, scholars and merchants became increasingly important. In a nutshell, this reversal explains the rise of Western Europe and the decline of the Muslim world. I think that sums up things quite nicely. I just wonder if you could talk about where the Ottoman Empire fits into this picture, because in the, in the book you talk about the Ottoman Empire being a key example, really, of this ulema state alliance which you argue caused damage over time. What role traditionally did the ulema play in the Ottoman state and how did this change over time, if it did at all? Thanks for the question. And you're right, the passage you read summarizes arguments uh, effectively. And one point I want to emphasize is that in the mindset of many scholars and people on the street, Islam and Christianity are very different. Islam is exceptional, unique. And Muslims, some Muslims, uh, maybe most of them, like this idea that Islam is unique, very different from Christianity. I see two problems. First of all, normatively, it helps Islamophobes to marginalize Muslims, 
to present Islam as something abnormal, exceptional, hard to be compared with other cases. And scientifically, it's, it's wrong because Muslims and Christians have very similar ideas, similar religions. Of course, there are differences. And when we analyze societies, I think there are universal rules. And in my book, I try to explain that it's class relations, relations between four classes. Religious class, what I call in the Muslim case, Islamic scholars, the ulama, and in the Catholic case, the Catholic Church, the clergy, then political class, then intellectual class, then economic class. You can call them merchants or bourgeoisie. So in any society, regardless whether Christian, Muslim, Taoist, Buddhist, if you have intellectuals and economic class, independent, autonomous, productive, you have progress. But in any society, if you see political and religious authorities establish an alliance, marginalize intellectuals and economic class, you have stagnation. So in the Ottoman case is very important. Because the process of the emergence of ulema state alliance began by the Seljuk Empire in the mid-11th century. Two main figures, one is Nizam al-Mulk, the uh, Seljuk Grand Vizier, and the second was Ghazali, the genius, the probably most important figure in Islam after Prophet Muhammad. And the Seljuk legacy was crucial, not only for the ulema state alliance, but many other ideas and institutions later shaped the Muslim world, including the Ottoman Empire, the Mamluks, and before Mamluks, the Ayyubis, and even Safavis, to a certain extent, was influenced by Seljuks. So, in addition to representing the Seljuk legacy, the Ottoman Empire ruled about six centuries, and they institutionalized what I call Ulema State Alliance with the office of Sheikh al-Islam, the chief Islamic cleric or chief ulema at the top. And they also institutionalized what I call the military state. So that's why the Ottomans became the paramount example of ulema state alliance. In the Ottoman system, as Halil Inaljik explains us very well, there were two types of people of the empire. One type was the military class in Turkish called askeri, basically, literally, as military. The second, the ordinary people. The difference is that the military class is like the guardian class in Plato's Republic. They don't pay tax, they serve the state, they own the state, and their private lives to a certain extent limited, for, at least for some cases. The ordinary people, Raya or the flock, they are not carrying weapons, they do pay tax, and they don't deal with governance. They are out of politics and governance, otherwise they will be punished as rebellions. So the Askeri class, the military, interestingly include not only the sultan's soldiers, but also the ulema. So the ulema was part of the military state structure, and there was no such thing as civilian bureaucrat versus military bureaucrat difference. If you are, for example, the mayor or the local governor of certain town, at the wartime, you became the commander with your soldiers representing the town. State is a military state, everything is military. So this is the Ulema State Alliance, the Ottoman Empire representing this model, very institutionalized form, and then rejecting any alternative ideas, etc. And all the way you can see the remnants of the model in today's Diyanet in Turkey, controlling 100,000 mosques and their Friday sermons and everything in a standardized, state-centric, centralized way. So 
Then when I present this argument, especially in Turkey, people ask, what about the Ottoman golden era? If you argue that mid-11th century is the beginning of decline, how come the Ottomans had a golden age? And militarily, geopolitically, I accept that Ottomans were successful, important, impressive. For example, in the 16th century, you see the Ottoman strategists, they try to stop Portugal sending artilleries and janissaries to Morocco to fight and the Moroccan plus Ottoman forces defeated entire Portuguese aristocracy trying to capture Morocco and destroy the state of Portugal. You see the Ottoman strategies in the same century trying to open a Suez Canal and then send the navy to Red Sea all the way to Indian Ocean to stop the Portuguese Indian Ocean experience. Then the Ottomans tried to build another canal in the Caspian Sea to send Ottoman navy in order to fight against Russians and Iranians. Then you see the Ottomans welcoming the Jews and Muslims escaping from Iberia, from the Reconquista. And then you see the Ottomans at the same time fighting in, in Central Europe and then sending a navy to India and Indonesia. So big geostrategic power. That's something I give credit in my book. But in terms of philosophy and economy, Ottoman Empire never had a golden era. In fact, the Ottoman ruling class, mostly military class, they didn't care much about philosophy, even economy, as well as European understand it, that. Of course, there were exceptions in 600 years of uh, long history. One exception was Fatih, the conqueror, Mehmed II. After conquering Constantinople, he invited some Renaissance painters. One painting, Bellini, came and he encouraged astronomy by inviting Ali Kuschu from Central Asia. And he commissioned a critique of Ghazali's famous book, The Incoherence of Philosophy, uh, written by Hojazadeh. So Fatih did things to revive philosophy, but he was just, it was just one shot. After him, the attempts ended. They didn't continue. So therefore, we don't see the scientific research, philosophical curiosity early Muslims had in the Ottoman Empire. Of course, there were some books written, but if we compare philosophical and scientific works Ottomans produce with the production of Muslims between 8th and 12th centuries, Ottoman production would be dwarfed. It was much less, much less important and much less in quality and quantity in comparison to early Islamic history. If you compare Ottomans with Western Europeans, the gap is even way much larger. At the time when Europe had Renaissance, Reform, Printing Revolution, Enlightenment, Scientific Revolution, the Ottomans had none of them. And as I explained earlier, they took the printing press very late. So the surprising thing is that both in Western academia and Turkish academia, there are those who deny this fact. They say there is no such thing as decline, there is no such thing as uh, the gap of literacy, 
I have hard time to understand. Maybe so. Wh- why are they denying? One reason. One reason is revisionism. So historians, in order to write PhD dissertations and write books, need to revise history and be revisionists. It seems interesting to say, no, it was not decline. Everything was fine. Look, I find some uh, scholars writing books, important books during the Ottoman Empire. The whole decline thesis is disproved. Another thing, I think the impact of postmodernism, cultural relativism becomes too much use, overuse, misuse. And then even very smart people start to question what is fall, what is decline, what is development, what is underdevelopment. Too much relativism and they lost the ability to really compare things. But I don't think either revisionism or postmodernism help us to understand the real picture. The Ottoman scientific and philosophical stagnation is a reality that denying it will not help any uh, Muslims or Turks. In fact, Turks really need to have a critical perspective, especially today when there is too much political emphasis about the so-called Ottoman revival, etc., in foreign policy, in domestic policy of daily life. And reviving the Ottoman past will be misleading for Turks. There should be certain level of critical engagement with the Ottoman history, understanding its successes and failures. And just to conclude, I wonder if you could kind of connect, we're talking about the Ulema State Alliance. People tend to see the Republic of Turkey as this huge break with what went before. But if I understand you correctly, you you argue that uh, that's not the case. And in fact, you know, the Diyanet, as you mentioned there before, is actually in many ways a continuation of an old Ottoman model. And indeed, you know, people talk about the Republic of Turkey being a very rigidly secular state. But in fact, it was a peculiar kind of secularism because it was one in which all religious institutions were connected to the state and brought under the umbrella of the Diyanet. Just talk about very briefly, you know, how the model really of uh, the Ulema State Alliance essentially was kind of adapted in the Republican Turkish model. Great question. This this has been debated whether the Turkish Republic represents a rupture from the Ottoman Empire or a continuation of it. And it depends. If you look at the Ottomans as a single entity, it is a state where millet system based on the coexistence of multiple religious entities, relig- religious leadership and laws. Plus, it was multi-ethnic. And then if you look at the Turkish Republic as a single entity, it's a secular republic with secular laws. And in my first book, I called it assertive secularism until recently. Today, no longer assertive, no longer even secular, the, the way they govern. Laws are still secular, but the government is not representing a secular way of governing the country. And then it is Turkish nationalists, unlike the Ottoman multi-ethnic system. So this is one way of looking. The other way is looking both as process. Ottomans initiated the reform process, secularizing laws starting with Tanzimat, and then having more nationalist emphasis at least since 1908. And that way you can see the Turkish Republic as a continuation. 
To make this long story short, I want to emphasize two points. One point, as you rightly refer to, the Dianet. Today, the Dianet uh, control about 100,000 mosques, and all imams are paid, and they are state servants. And this is a direct continuation of the Ottoman model of ulema state alliance. And today, you see the Dianet is becoming more and more important as almost a pillar of government. The second point is the Kemalist ideology and the Kemalist down modernization reforms. Many people regard it as almost the opposite of ulema state alliance, but it is not. It is different, yes, because Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and his cadre marginalized the ulema, put them aside, still make them part of government with Diyanet, but less important. This is true. And we see it many other places like Egypt, from Muhammad Ali Pasha to Jamal Abdul Nasser, reformist, secularist, modern reformists try to marginalize the ulema, try to put them aside. But for me, it was not the ideal way of reforming because while setting the ulema aside, these leaders in both Turkey and Egypt filled the gap with the bureaucrats. Ulema were replaced by bureaucrats. Even intellectual life became under state control. So therefore, the main weakness of Kemalist reforms, which was keeping economy and intellectual life under state control, was in fact a continuation of the mentality of the Ulema State Alliance, the mentality of the Ottoman Empire, the mentality that neither intellectuals nor economic class is trustworthy. Even today, the hardcore Kemalists, they don't have trust to either market forces, economic entrepreneurs, or intellectuals. They always have the suspicions that the intellectuals have ideas dangerous to top modern Kemalist reforms. They can change things. But the solution in Turkey and other Muslim countries is to really help the emergence of a truly independent, autonomous, productive bourgeoisie and economic class and in creative intellectuals who can be critical of Islam and Kemalism, Islamist ideas and modernist ideas. This is what Muslim world needs. This is what is missing in Turkey. And this is how I see Kemalism to a certain extent, continuation of the old Ottoman mentality of state-centric worldview. That was Ahmet Kuru. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 125. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Tourist Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account also do please rate or review turkey book talk on itunes or whatever podcast platform you use follow via twitter or like our facebook page to stay fully updated with new episodes and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to william john armstrong at gmail.com and finally don't forget to check out turkey book talk's partner initiative turkey recap turkey recap is an email newsletter that's put together by journalists razier akkoch and diego cupolo friends of turkey book talk it's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in turkey over the past seven days arriving in your email inbox every thursday turkey recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns just search for turkey recap on twitter or google to subscribe but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening.
Bütün dünyaya gezdi.